0: It is a journey that I never thought that I would ever embark on, never thought that I would love it as much as I do, never thought that it would not only give me confidence to try new things and to expect more of myself and other people kind of in life, and I never thought that it would literally save my life. And it has. And it's truly this really magical thing that it happens with every single rep.
1: You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the
0: myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kyberg, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential.
1: Mira Gracia, welcome to Muscle Medicine Podcast. I have been secretly girl fanning you on Instagram from across the country in New York, and you're in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, you have many strong first certifications under your belt. Uh huh. It might be all of them. Is that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> And you have a gym in Portland, Industrial Strength. And is that all your instructors or almost all your instructors are Strong First 2 certified?
0: Yeah. So all of our instructors that teach the strength training portion of our modalities are Strong First. And then we have a a few instructors that coach jujitsu and kickboxing, which are you know, they are in their own,
1: <laughs> yeah, their, their own, own level expertise. of
0: expertise. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about your strength training journey as a woman, which might sound kind of like a weird question, but in my experience, sometimes when I introduce a kettlebell, sometimes I get the sideways look like, I don't know about that. That might injure me, <laughs> but I'm curious about your strength training journey. So basically, gosh, you
0: know, I'd always been fairly active, even from when I was a child. My father is a grandmaster in Taekwondo. So, you know, basically, as soon as I could walk, you know, he was teaching us certain things and whatnot. And I come to realize now it was more about learning how to be disciplined and and kind of following instructions and doing things and accomplishing things and, you know, finding joy and success in, in the little things. It was less so much about how to defend myself or anything like that. I think it was his secret way. So I'd always been exposed to kind of that physical culture from a very early age. And then, gosh, probably as a child, mostly gymnastics and ice skating, that sort of thing. You know, kind of the the typical girl sports, I did gravitate a little bit towards baseball, <laughs> oh, <interesting. laughs> which was not typically a girl sport. I was never very good at it, but <laughs> but wanted to do it. And then I think I kind of, as I got older, I always kind of considered myself to be a little bit of a tomboy in the sense that I always wanted to push myself and try the things that the boys were doing because why not? And it looked like fun, right? You know, I did that for a few years, did gymnastics for about 10 years and whatnot. And then when I got to college, I didn't have a sport. I didn't have something that I did. Although I always, again, felt that some sort of physical activity was, was always going to be a part of me. As one does in college, they experiment with lots of things. And so I found myself involved in an endurance sport, cycling. So did that for about four years. And what I loved about that at the time was that you were always competing against yourself in a certain sense, right? Like there's always obviously one winner of the race, but you know you always had a place where oh, well, last year I did fifth, right? And this year I did fourth and my time was better. You know, so there was that sort of like self-comparison versus, you know, competing against other people. And that was an interesting thing for me because it all of a sudden became kind of an individual journey. And then after college, you know, did still did a little bit of that and kind of ended up more in the sort of hobby realm of things, you know, a little bit of snowboarding, things like that. That's when I moved out west to Portland from New York and I started working for a board sports company so got exposed to going sideways, you know, skateboarding, surfing, kiteboarding, things like that. And really fell in love with that for a little while. And then I think probably moving to Portland itself from Hood River, I didn't know what to do at that point in time because I don't know. I think I just kind of ran out of steam with regards to water sports. You know, driving to the mountain seemed a little bit harder. So I was like, "Well, I need I need something to do." This was back in two thousand eight or two thousand nine, something like that. I'd never strength trained ever in my entire life. Never been inside of a gym and outside of like a gymnastics gymnasium, but never strength trained. And one day, kind of. Through certain circumstances, needed an ego boost, so I went to the gym and I said, "Okay, I'm going to work on myself. I'm going to do something for me." So I went to the 24-hour fitness in the Pearl and I said, "Okay, I'm going to get a personal trainer to show me how to use all these machines because I have no idea how to use any of them."
1: And, and there's so uh, many machines. There are so there's many. So machines. many machines. <laughs>
0: And so I had my copy of, you know, I think at the time, you know, Oxygen magazine or women's health magazine. And I, you know, I was going to do this one, you know, butt burner routine or something like that, you know, get flat abs in five weeks, that sort of thing. And so the trainer at the time actually showed me nothing about the machines. And this is where I definitely got lucky because I could have had the completely, you know, opposite experience. He showed me nothing about the machines and showed me how to deadlift, how to squat, how to pull my own body weight, that sort of stuff. Again, that's where I totally lucked out. And so I started just like your average person, you know, going to the gym and, you know, having zero expectations of what was a lot of weight, what wasn't a lot of weight, you know, how to do any of the lifts, things like that. And so did. Basically, that and I think probably some aerobics, some step aerobics for about two years. <laughs> I, was, I was that person.
1: <laughs> how serendipitous um, to meet the trainer <laughs> that will make you pull a deadlift versus yeah. teach you how to, like, you know, yes. <laughs> push, the, push the machine. <laughs> how to do
0: hamstring curls or something yes. like that. Not that that's bad, but you know, it was uh, definitely the right path for me. And then at the 24 Hour Fitness that you, that you know of, I saw a girl doing a barbell snatch and I remember walking down from like the cardio deck one day after like step aerobics and and I saw her doing this lift and I was like what is that? I'd never seen anything like that before. And someone was like oh that's a you know that's that's a barbell snatch and I was like oh my god. It kind of incorporated my strength training, you know, picking up things off the floor, squatting, that type of things with weight with the gymnastics part of it almost in my head. And I was like, I have to learn that. That's so cool. Ironically enough, one of the other trainers, 24, had a little bit of experience of uh, the Olympic lifts. And so I contacted that person and signed up for some lessons. And he taught me kind of the basics. And again, at that point in time, it was kind of like the Wild West. There was, there was weightlifting was nothing like it is today. And I think there were maybe 50 people in the entire state of Oregon that were doing this. And so I started learning that. And then at the same time is when I got introduced to kettlebells as well, you know, immediately kind of fell in love with, with that modality. And I don't know, I a kind of overall feeling that I got from using those particular instruments and performing those particular movements. And I kind of think, you know, along the way I was getting a lot of confidence through that and that particular aspect of it is what I enjoyed the most. It's kind of how I felt afterwards. You go, you complete something, you may be unsure of what, what's going to happen, you do it, and afterwards, you feel better. That's what I really gravitated towards throughout this whole, this whole journey. And I never got that with, with the other things that I did in life. You know, I, Maybe a little bit like, hey, I did a little bit better here, I did a little bit better here. But there was something untangible about picking something up or doing something physical like that that was kind of amazing.
1: <laughs> Magical <laughs> that
0: I still love that I still love today. <laughs> yeah.
1: I didn't know you had so many years of gymnastics. I'm yeah. curious. Yeah. Because gymnastics is so much extension uh-huh. in the back. And you know, really working almost like a hypermobility, especially like hamstrings, you see the gymnast like doing the overstretch and the splits. Yeah. Was it tricky to kind of create full body stability and a brace in the core with so many years of backbending? Yeah. So that's interesting
0: that you say that because you are absolutely right. The typical gymnastics is about hypermobility. In all areas, so not just the back, but in the hips as well and the shoulders. An old gymnast in college might be twenty-one years old. An old gymnast, <laughs> right? So prime not season for gymnast, longevity. Yeah, not l- <laughs> no, no. Prime season gymnast, you know, you're probably about 16, 17, right? As soon as, as soon as that, you know, you start to kind of peak downwards, and there are some, I would say. Questionable practices with regards to how you maintain that hypermobility that are not terribly safe. I have a friend who's a physical therapist who was also a former collegiate gymnast. She cannot fully extend her arms overhead because of the repeated, I would say, techniques used in order to get that extension. And she actually works with gymnasts here in Oregon as well to help fix them after physically being forced by their coaches into positions to maintain that mobility. So for me, I was always mobile you know, through my life as a result of the gymnastics, I'm sure, and just being honestly female. So when I first started strength training, I used a lot of that space that I had in order to get into the positions and did actually end up injuring myself. Because in my hip, because I kind of just fell into a squat, or I could go there. So I said, you know, why not access that space and, and do that? So I didn't really know how to control the weight or the movement. So I did end up injuring myself. Luckily, found some really amazing people to help me gain stability and ownership of my joint space, if that makes sense. That was a lesson hard learned. <laughs> But certainly, something that I find very valuable now that I'm a coach is that you know, just because you can get into these, these positions doesn't mean that you own them, right? Yes. And for most women or even men, they don't. And they rely on that, that hypermobility and that flexibility as a form of stability. And that's when those, those soft tissue
1: injuries happen. So, yeah. yeah, for sure. When you say own it, yeah. own the movement, what does that mean? So, being able to do it slowly
0: right being able to do it without any external forces so weight things like that right being able to have control in that space or whatever whatever it is that you're trying to do you know say for example a body weight squat if i can do it slowly if i can do it under control and i can do it without having to hold something and some people obviously for whatever reason might need to hold on to a little bit of counterweight because of mobility restrictions yada yada but in its simplest, purest form, you know, without anything external I and mean, being able to do that somewhat effortlessly, you know, under control, essentially. Yeah.
1: And I think for people who do lift weights, that slow control owning the movement is like, oh, that is amazing. Yeah. I think sometimes for the people, the population who doesn't weight lift, maybe they do a little more like dance cardio or mm-hmm. it's a hit class. The slow and controlled, isn't that sexy sometimes? No, slow and controlled is never sexy. (laughs) Never sexy.
0: (laughs) Because it's not shiny and it's not fun. It is often fairly uncomfortable, right? Yeah. (laughs) So if we talk about even like a push-up, right? Yes. It's way cooler to do a crap ton of them, maybe not all the way down, and to do them really fast, right? That's cool. I did like 50 push-ups. I would much rather see somebody, myself or any of the people that I train, do one push up and have five seconds to get down to that push up, pause for two seconds at the bottom, five seconds to get up. That is a feat of beauty for me.
1: That is a feat of beauty for me too. <laughs> yeah. And super hard. Yes. 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 We'll be huffing and puffing after that. <laughs> yeah. For the women listening and as women, culturally I think there's a tendency to kind of like suck in our belly to Mm -hmm. skinny up the waistline or just to suck in to look skinnier or look a certain way for myself. I feel like I have to retrain that all day, every day. I'm wondering if someone who teaches strength where when you're lifting, you don't necessarily want to pull your belly button to your spine like, how do you kind of start to shift people's perspective around that? It's funny because
0: you're right. A lot of people will draw, you'll hear this, you know, draw the belly button in, right? And if you draw the belly button in, you, you know, you're you're essentially pulling it, you're sucking in your stomach and you're pulling your belly button towards your back, right? And by doing that, you essentially, we, so I'll kind of back up. We kind of like to think about our... Core, right, or including our stomach and, you know, rib cage all the way down to our pelvis, is kind of a tin can. It's cylindrical, meaning that there's pressure forward out to the sides and also into the back. And so I kind of tell people, I'm like, you know, imagine that tin can. And if it is round all the way and pressurized in the top and bottom, it is pretty darn strong, right? And I try to tell people that. The integrity of that is what keeps you safe and what allows you to do the different movements, You know, whether it be a squat, whether it be picking something off of the ground, i.e. a deadlift, whether it be doing a plank, whether it be push-up, anything of that sort, right? Even a bench press where you see a bit of an arch, they are still maintaining that cylinder, it just happens to be in a slightly different shape, but it's still pressurized and it still doesn't move. So I try to get that across to the person first. And then what I like to think about is if you're drawing your belly button in, you're essentially making a dent in the front of that can. So we don't want that for safety reasons and then for for ultimately for performance reasons, right? So, you know, and I have them either put their own hands on their sides and not so much on the front of their stomach, because a lot of people, including myself, are you know sensitive about that little pooch that's right there, right? <laughs> we all have it. So I asked them to put their hands kind of on their sides and put their fingers into their rib cage, and then essentially take a, take a deep nasal breath and kind of fill your belly and kind of push out your fingers at the same exact time right? So I get them to do that a few times, right? And they feel like, okay, I get the concept of actually filling up my belly with air. And then what we'll do is we will have them translate that to not only filling and pushing out their fingers out to the side, but actually imagining that air going into your lower back, right? So then you're putting pressure through your lower back, right? And if someone is able to do that, they end up actually filling their belly forward as well with air and then learning how to kind of lock it in and, and brace that, right? And in Strong First, we call the idea of being braced, but then also being able to even talk and you know do movements called breathing behind the shield, right? So I'm still braced and I'm still talking and yet I'm still braced. And so you know, trying to get across those particular ideas to someone, especially if they're new, even if there's someone who's super experienced, sometimes our concept of what bracing is, is a little bit different. So I like to kind of approach it all with the same storyline so that we're all on the same page about what that means. As far as the whole sucking your belly, going to the gym type thing, I also am completely cool with making fun of myself and sharing all of my own personal stories of embarrassment that turned into maybe stories that can help someone else, right? I mean, I totally used to be that person. I would go into the 24-hour fitness. I would suck my belly in, make myself as skinny as possible, puff my chest up so that I would look good. And you kind of realize that when you're actually learning how to strength train, that is not the best way to keep yourself safe and do the exercises, right? And so- Once I kind of like try to shift the focus away from the aesthetic of it and really shift more of the focus on, you know, hey, I'm going to teach you this skill and this is part of owning that skill, it changes the focus. And then people are much more receptive to actually bracing and actually pushing their
1: stomachs out a little bit. And that's cool. Yeah. (laughs) That was like the most perfect breathing bracing description <laughs> I've heard on this podcast yet. Oh good. <laughs> yeah. Strong first also has a very specific exhale. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was first training in swinging kettlebells and learning to snatch and I would go to, you know, a traditional, like an equinox, I was embarrassed Yeah, that like forceful audible, like you know, I felt like I got like the sideways looks, but it's really important. Can you tell the listeners why? Yeah. Yeah. So we basically
0: to mimic it, you would essentially inhale through your nose, you know, fill your belly with air and then exhale very sharply. So imagine that you had one of those really tiny drinking straws that you get with a cocktail that are about maybe two millimeters in diameter, and you had that, you know, on your lips, and you forcefully exhale as hard as you can, not all of your air, but let's just imagine that you're, you know, you have your tin can, and imagine that you're exhaling about 30% of that air through that little tiny drinking straw. And the idea of that is to kind of solidify the brace at the top of a swing, right? or even a press or a squat, right? Or even a deadlift. Anytime that you're finishing a type of lift, the sound is you end up sounding kind of like a little snake or something. It's uh, (laughs) and you probably did get some weird looks at the equinox, but it basically, if you think about it, it kind of locks in your core at the finish of of any of those types of exercises. And that is what is going to help keep you from going into extension. It's going to help solidify the top position so that you're safe at the top, essentially, or at the finish of any of those exercises. And it really kind of just hones in, I would say, more of the safety first, because it's really, really hard to make that sound and to do it properly And to actually make the sound properly and be in a bad position in all honesty, right? But if you don't, you can still be in a good position, but it's just harder, right? It's harder to know that you're doing it right, essentially. Yeah. So it's definitely more of a safety thing. It is, you know, definitely translates to being more of a performance thing too. But I would say it really helps you to be more safety focused at the top of any of this exercise. It like
1: locks in the brace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. I kind of tell
0: people it's like an exclamation mark at the end of a sentence. Oh, I like Like, that. Boom. Right there. Over and over and over again. (laughs) Oh, I love it.
1: Brett Jones was on the podcast and he talks about, you know, the man has been swinging a kettlebell for like decades. And he's like, every time, every single rep, I learn something new. (laughs) 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 And so for people who are trying to push their capacity, which may be perceived as like at the end of your workout, you're laying on the floor exhausted in a pool of sweat. That's kind of like one picture of pushing capacity, right? Mm -hmm. And for myself and, you know, for patients in our clinic, pushing capacity, like once you start to lose form, which might be you're pressing overhead and you start to flare the ribs or lose that canister or overarch in the back, especially just from like a clinical setting, that is now compromising safety is kind of losing that form. But sometimes it's hard to push people to challenge themselves if they park the bell when the form is lost. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. what's kind of like that happy medium. Cause you don't want to be the person that, you know, on the floor in the pool of sweat. Cause that person has probably lost their, their form in, to have challenged your capacity. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be the person who's, you know, always just doing the same weight bell. Mm-hmm. How do you start to challenge capacity without totally like having form fall apart? Yeah. So we at industrial
0: strength and, and myself included, obviously, we like to think about the lifts or honestly anything that you do. It could be a pull-up, it could be a push up, you know, anything as leaving as as a technical rep. So there's a the definition of a technical rep versus or a, a technical one rep max for example and then a one rep max, right? So your technical one rep max is something that sometimes you can do for two repetitions and a true one rep max is something where you're done, right? Like after that one rep you could not do anything further period. So what we like to do is because we're not dealing with people that are competitors no one here is going to the olympics right we're all doing this for sustainability for building durability and resilience and to be stronger in life right it doesn't necessarily you know the caveat is is that you know it doesn't mean that you're not really freaking strong right but your goal is to be more durable and more resilient so we like to talk about a technical you know, one rep max. So that means leaving a little bit in the tank all the time, right? So if I am coaching you, you know, on a Zedlift, for example, right? And say you can do 70 kilos for for three or four reps, right? You can do 80 kilos for two reps. And say if you did 90 kilos your form would start to kind of fall apart a little bit and I would see a little bit of bending in your back or something like that. Right. But you know, it's not horrible. You could still do it. Right. I would say, you know what, let's go back to 80 kilos or let's even go to like 85 kilos. Right. And let's really hone in on your technique and let's get you to the point where you can do that for a solid two. that notion of leaving just a little bit in the tank always, A, that gives you confidence that you can do more, and B, it gives you a little bit of buffer room in the sense that you don't have to always push yourself to the point of failure. Like We never want to teach your body and your mind to fail. We always want to leave it saying, oh, you know what? That was hard, but I could do a little bit more. And if you always have that mentality, there still is no limit to what you can do. So fast forward, you know, we're on a program six months from now. Now you're doing 100 kilos for two instead of, you know, your 80 or 85 kilos, right? So you have, in all essence, gone beyond what you could have done six months ago. But your perception of it is still that you have a little bit of room in the tank. And I always tell people that you know, don't go to failure just because you're huffing and puffing and you're dying or whatever, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are getting stronger, you are getting better. I would much rather have you be able to have a conversation, be able to look me in the eye and, you know, and focus and always have that kind of mentality, but at the same time, getting stronger all the time. And, not to say that like sometimes things aren't going to be difficult, <laughs> you know, sometimes things will get a little uncomfortable, but if you know that you still have a little bit left, I think that gives someone a little bit of confidence. And I think that's ultimately a smarter way to train in all honesty, yeah. unless you're saving lives or going to the Olympics and
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good way. Yeah. 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 I mean, you talk about wanting to be able to kind of work out how you want to work out when you're 80. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I I plan on employing the
0: same types of tactics when I'm 80. (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I have only done kettlebells, but you strength train with kettlebells and with the barbell. And I always picture kettlebells being like, you can kind of work form a little bit easier. Like you have a little bit of more wiggle room versus Mm barbell it 's a little harder to and you can correct me if i 'm wrong to kind of get form locked in and but you can lift heavier weight potentially with barbell mm-hmm. what 's kind of the difference in conditioning and training with each modality
0: Well, as far as conditioning is concerned, kettlebells is i would say a much better implement they 're basically tools they will both get you stronger. They just there have they have different shapes, they look different, right, so I wouldn't necessarily use a barbell for conditioning only because the types of lifts that you can do with a barbell do not lend themselves to higher volumes and outside of a set of ten repetitions, which is a lot with a barbell, at least for me. <laughs> With a kettlebell, you can do certain movements that work a little bit more of the endurance curve versus the strength curve and power curve, which is a good thing. At the same time, it does work strength and power too, is the kettlebell swing and, and the snatch. With those particular types of movements that you cannot do with a barbell, you can strengthen your heart, essentially, right, as well as your back, your abs, your you know hamstrings, your butt, like everything. So with a barbell, yeah, you can obviously load it fairly heavy, much heavier than a than you could uh, pick up a kettlebell, even though they make really heavy kettlebells these days. <laughs> but at a certain point, you know, if you're deadlifting a sixty kilo kettlebell, then I would say probably transition to a barbell just because at that point there's more that you can do essentially. But having said that, some people are just intimidated with a barbell and weights and whatnot. It looks kind of scary, right? So we use heavier kettlebells or even double kettlebells because they just they're a little bit more approachable visually, not nearly as intimidating. And a lot of times what I say is like, hey, you know what? You just deadlifted that 60 kilo kettlebell for five repetitions. I'm going to show you what the exact same weight looks like on a barbell. And yeah, we're going to have to learn how to deadlift that, you know, with a different tool because it's a little bit of a different setup and all that sort of stuff. But you are fully capable of doing the same exact thing with a barbell. And then they're like, oh,
1: (laughs) I love that that transition. It's like sneaky. But
0: (laughs) yeah, yeah. And you know, and it's the same thing with like like I have I I I train one gal who, you know, she's a mom. She has no intention of quote unquote getting strong. She's like, I just want to like hang out with my kid and not have to, you know, kind of worry about being able to to keep up, essentially, is what she said. And so without any expectations. Whatsoever, she doesn't even like to work out, so <laughs> so I have to like sneakily get things in there. But you know, she's all of like five foot two or something, and she does twenty four kilo presses. Wow. She, she also does not think that she's strong, right? And yet she can do a twenty four kilo press. Yeah. Whoa!
1: I'm impressed. So she is.
0: She has no idea, which is the coolest thing ever.
1: <laughs> oh man. Where do for so for example, like women coming to industrial strength, like where do you start them if they have never strength trained before? When they come to the gym? Yeah. I mean wait. just like like from a from a mental or even just like an assessment. Like what you know, some people will look at the kettlebell and be like, that's gonna injure me. That's scary. They're only used to like the five-pound weight. It might be pink. Like how do you kind of, <laughs> which have their they have their own uses. How do you start to work with someone like that and kind of break down those barriers of intimidation?
0: Regardless of gender, regardless of experience, we start everybody off in the same exact way, mostly because. We are trying to make sure that we're all on the same page about vocabulary, expectations, and things like that, right? So we start everybody off with a movement screen. And I tell people it's like this. You walk in off the street. I have no idea how you move, right? I don't know anything about your history. I don't know anything. You know, you could be a D1 college football player or you could have literally never done anything Ever and uh, be a software engineer and sit at your desk all day, right? So I need to perform an assessment on you to get a baseline of how you move to identify any low-hanging fruit of potential pain and at which point then we are aligned with uh, some medical professionals, physical therapists, you know, chiros, et cetera, that we punt to because that's not our area of expertise and then we pull things from the functional movement screen because it's something that's very repeatable, it's, it's trusted, and it's easy to execute. You know, it's very, very repeatable, essentially. And we'll do the, the movement screen on everybody. And then we'll do some baseline things like teach them how to hip hinge, teach them the difference between a hip hinge and a squat work on things like identifying what the core is that I talked about before through dead bugs and planks and things like that. So we do the same thing with everybody. And at first, you know, we will certainly choose appropriate weights for the person when we're teaching them. So sometimes it might be the pink kettlebell. We do have some competition bells, which are all the same diameter, but way different, right? So the pink eight kilo bell, and it's kind of annoying that the lightest one is pink. pink. I would much rather have the heaviest <laughs> one be pink, but you know, whatever. So, you know, sometimes we'll start with an eight kilo kettlebell, which happens to be the pink one, and just show them how to hip hinge and then just gradually, you know, move up as we see appropriate, you know, depending on the person's experience level and whatnot. I'm very frank with people, you know, I say, if you don't do the movements with a certain skill level, right, you can hurt yourself. And kettlebells are absolutely dangerous. Same thing with any of these other tools, right? And so that's why it's really important to identify what the foundation is, like bracing, like a proper way to do the movement before adding weight before adding volume to it. And
1: that goes for anybody. Which goes back to owning the movement. Right. Yeah. Right. Totally. Right. What are some of your, like, what are you kind of playing with these days in terms of lifts, workout drills?
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> so I compete in weightlifting. So it's Olympic style weightlifting. So the snatch, it's comprised of the snatch and the clean and jerk. And so those are the two movements that I'm trying to get better at all the time. And sometimes that is oftentimes a fairly frustrating journey, but something that I'm pretty open about saying that I'm fairly obsessed about. (laughs) So yeah. (laughs) And I've had to change what that looks like as I've gotten older. That's just life. whatever I do ends up with that sort of goal in mind. So it, basically everything I do is an accessory to those two lifts. So mm. I overload those two lifts with squatting, with pulling. So I can squat more than I can clean. I can pull more than I can snatch and clean and jerk, things like that. What I have found very beneficial over the years is incorporating my kettlebell training into my weightlifting training. So with weightlifting or with any barbell sport, most of the time it's a bilateral movement. So a two-legged squat, two-handed press, et cetera, et cetera. With kettlebell training, you are forced to do things unilaterally, right? With the exception of probably, you know, a deadlift or a two-handed swing or, or a goblet squat, but most of it's unilateral. And because of its sort of odd nature and shape, it really forces you to have good ownership again of the movement. It really forces good stability, you know, especially overhead. And so I, I like to incorporate kettlebell training at least, you know, two, three times a week in the form of even get-ups and swings and presses and lunges and things like that and kettlebell snatches in order to, to make my barbell lifts better essentially.
1: Interesting. So the barbell lifts are the bilateral component, but you're training kind of some asymmetrical unilateral
0: Mm -hmm.
1: things to help with the bilateral.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Because if you always train bilaterally, you have no idea whether or not your right arm is stronger than your left or vice versa. Or if one even just kind of moves a little bit differently, right? And none of us is perfectly symmetrical. We're all working on on being a little bit more even left to right, but it's when you have the big discrepancies in either strength or movement that is, I would say, the, the biggest predictor to injury. So being able to do things as equally as you can, challenging yourself with you know something like a kettlebell, is hugely beneficial when it comes to, you know, again, that sort of overall durability and resiliency.
1: Yeah. I have to say, I always default to what I really like to do, mm-hmm. which is two-handed swings and double press. Uh-huh. <laughs> so when I force myself to Turkish get up lunges, oh my God, my, <laughs> my, like, I'll do lunges and I'll hold a 12 kilo and I will feel like destroyed the next day, but I could... <laughs> swing heavy and press all day long Uh (laughs) (laughs) so I really have to program into my own workout or have someone program it for me to do the Mm -hmm. things I don't like (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) but so I always tell people
0: that the thing that you don't want to do the most Mm -hmm. is the thing that you should do the most (laughs) we're all guilty
1: of that How would someone look for a qualified, a good instructor, right? Because there's so many different courses and continuing education and certifications out there. And sometimes the landscape can look a little confusing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I would say because in this country we don't have, I mean, yes, now now there is that sort of four-year degree or some, some people even have master's degrees in exercise science and things like that. A plus. That's awesome. In most other countries, especially in Europe, it is an actual degree that you have to earn. So I would say that the vetting process for finding someone who is a coach or a trainer is maybe a little bit more direct in other countries. Here in the States, you actually don't have to have any kind of certification, really. I mean, you could just say that you are a trainer. Yeah literally not have anything. That's a little scary. <laughs> and certainly very confusing. I would say just like getting in touch or connecting with anybody when you're looking for skilled, someone skilled is ask questions, right? So do you perform an assessment, right? Or even just say, you know, hey, I'm looking for a trainer. How do you go about taking on someone new? and if the person doesn't do an initial assessment to find out where my baseline is and they just say okay we're going to we're going to just do some stuff you know and you're going to do that with me and we'll kind of go from there well that doesn't tell me anything about whether or not i have a previous injury for example whether or not i work on a farm and i Buck hay all day long as my job or anything like that, right? So any qualified person will start with an assessment, will get a full history occupation because that tells me whether or not you're sitting at a desk or whether or not you do manual labor or a combination of both. So I'm just on my feet all day picking up kids, right? That tells me a lot about how you move and the types of, of types of movements that you do. And then also asking about personal history So any types of injuries, you know, what you did as a kid, any sports that you played, things like that. And then as far as the type of training, I would say, I mean, there are great resources like, you know, you can go on the Strong First website, for example, you can find a certified instructor. I can't speak to all the different certifications out there, but I would say that Strong First is a great place to start only because... The different modalities. They have instructors that are certified in body weight exercises. They have instructors that are certified in kettlebell movements and then also barbell movements as well. So, whether or not you are looking for either of those modalities, you're going to find someone in your area that has a very, I would say, consistent level of knowledge anywhere in the world, essentially. So, I mean, I would say that that's a good place to start. And then outside of that, like just using your judgment, you know, looking around. It's tricky, right? You know, it is. It is very, very hard. You know, someone can contact me if they want to. I'd be happy to help.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the other things that I think is interesting just in my own kind of journey of finding good trainers is asking them if they've had an injury and have they worked through it and have they... Mm -hmm which might be a little personal for like a first conversation, but I think that attention to detail and really keeping that curiosity of form and modifications and how to work with someone, if they've had to do it in their own body.
0: Mm -hmm. It's like a really
1: telling thing.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mira, where can people find
0: you? Our website is industrialstrengthgym.com and social media would be industrialstrengthgym. Or my personal one is Mira B. So it's M-I-R-A underscore B-E-E-Z-Z. And that's just my nickname. (laughs) Perfect.
1: Perfect. Is there anything that you would want to leave listeners who, I don't know, anything at all of strength or training or anything? Well,
0: I'll leave you with this one. And it's fairly personal, but I'm almost 50. I'll be 49 next year. And I have been strength training in some way, shape or form for gosh, almost 13 years now, which, you know, it's not that long in the grand scheme of things, because I'm sure people have been doing it for a lot longer, but it is a journey that I never thought that I would ever embark on. Never thought that I would love it as much as I do never thought that it would not only give me confidence to try new things and to expect more myself and other people kind of in life. And I never thought that it would literally save my life. And it has. I feel physically stronger, mentally stronger. I have more bandwidth to help others other women particularly is my, you know, my niche, but I mean, really anybody, you know, and it's truly this really magical thing that it happens with every single rep. And it really does. I mean, I sound super hokey, but it really does change your life. It's pretty
1: amazing. Yeah. yeah. I, I'd second that. <laughs> <laughs> Mira, thank you so much. It yeah. was such a pleasure to sit down thank with you. you and chat. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends... Or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys so much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.